I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Rise Together podcast. Ooh, I'm excited today to introduce you to my new friend, Mallory Irvin, is here today. She's an American YouTube personality, former entertainer, former beauty pageant title holder from Kentucky. Uh, she was Miss Kentucky back in 2009 the fourth runner-up to Miss America 2010, and a three-time contestant on The Amazing Race, and has now evolved her career into something that has her sharing her love for fashion and beauty in positive lifestyle family vlogs and her daily life on her hugely popular YouTube channel. She's also got a new book coming out. It's called Living Fully. It comes out uh, just uh, around the corner, February 8th, and she, in it, shares her personal story of overcoming the unhealthy and damaging patterns in her life and shows readers how to trade this for something completely new and wildly more rewarding through the inspiring stories and practical advice. Mallory encourages readers to stop returning to a just getting by mentality and shift their perspective so that blessings don't become burdens. She's going to help you quiet that voice of fear inside of you to help you get clear on the life that you want so that you can truly start living fully. Please welcome Mallory Irvin to the Rise Together podcast. What would the world look like if we all pushed ourselves to have candid conversations with people who didn't look like us, think like us, or live like us? I'm Dave Hollis, and I'm on a mission to learn more about this world by meeting more of the people who live here. You may not always agree with everything you hear, but I guarantee you'll come away more informed on topics you might never have thought to seek out before. This isn't just a podcast, it's a community. And when we raise each other up, we all rise together. Hello, Mallory. Hello, what a beautiful introduction. I wish I could use that like a walking out music, you know? <laughs> oh, just anytime you're walking anywhere, just call me. I'll just shout it in uh, into a speakerphone and then uh, everyone hopefully will rise, take off their hats and acknowledge the greatness yeah. that has entered the room. Uh, awesome. Thank you. That was a great uh, introduction. <laughs> of course, of course. So I, uh, you know, I've attempted here with this bio of sorts to give readers the tops of the trees version of who you are, but I like to ask uh, the question in a little bit of a different way when I'm asking you to now describe who you believe yourself to be. Uh, you get one of two choices. Either how might you introduce yourself at a cocktail party to someone that you were meeting for the first time, or how would you describe what you believe to be the reason why you have been placed on this planet? Oh, wow. 
Okay. Or both. <laughs> so you know what? I'll speak to the first one first because a lot of my book is about just that. Like how I used to introduce myself with all my titles and my accolades. I was so crippled by all those good things that I had achieved for such a long time. So when I met you at dinner at a dinner party, I would want to say, this is my name. And here is what I've recently done that you're going to be really interested in. And I think so many of us do that. You know, you really have to pay attention to the way you're introducing yourself to people, those things that like you're holding out in front of you, like this is who I am. Because a lot of times it's not who we really are. And we get really stuck to those attachments. That's a big part of my book. But man, the second thing is how I, like how I introduce myself now. If I'm in kind of a deep introduction, I don't say how my name is Mallory and here is why I've been put on this earth. But I really wish we all did that because I'm obsessed with this whole subject of living fully and like sharing my story in a different way. Uh, you know, I'm an online personality and like influencer and I show all of these amazing polished, like fun behind the scenes. This is the life, you know? And for years and years, people would start to say, you know, I wish that I could wake up and feel like that. Or I wish I could have this relationship with my husband. Or I wish, I wish, you know, I could be more like that. And I would always respond and say, oh my gosh, no, you don't know this part of my story. I, I have been through this, you know, really big transition in my life. I chose the way that I live every day and I, I choose it every day. And this is how, and I realized like, I have to share this part of my story. And so the reason I think that I was put on this earth is just that now. And I also think that like being a parent, uh, you know, I know that you're the, a parent of four. I'm a parent of two. I'm having another one in June. I'm, I'm pregnant now. So we're about to have a full house too. And Amazing. I'm Congrats. from this family, thanks, that has always been really obsessed with like legacy and talked about it to us when we were kids. And we would have these quarterly family meetings and bring in people to speak. And I'm the oldest of 24 cousins that like all grew up on this farm. And my family just always was like, what is the legacy you're leaving? What is it today? And so I really think that this whole message of really thinking about your life and like thinking about the legacy that you're going to leave in the day to day, and how you parent your kids, how you exist in the world, like the things that you're put on earth to do are, are so important. So I, um, I think I was put on this earth to like share this, this journey and this story. And I, I wish that everyone introduced themselves like that rather than the first way, which is how I think a lot of us introduce ourselves defined by all these things we've done and these facts about who we are that a lot of people just don't even get underneath ever, I think. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because I, man, I resonate with it so much. I had so much of my professional identity connected yeah. to the role that I had at the Walt Disney company when I was working there and my oh, introductory yeah. line. Every time I was at a cocktail party at a family gathering was Disney Dave representing what I had in significance or some story that might have, uh, you know, the glitz and glamour of the role. Yeah. Have you maybe liking me because of the glitz or glamour, maybe thinking differently of me because of the status that is associated with the role, but it doesn't then, especially in what now in time has proven to be a temporal thing. I'm no longer Disney mm -hmm. Dave and that moniker, any moniker that you might lead with, if it ever is something that can change, It'll leave you a little bit with this question of who am I now that I'm no longer who I've been or who am I really if I'm not the thing that I've led with? I was driven so much, and I know I think that there's some similarities here with you too, with achievements, oh, in yeah. part because I wanted those achievements to define 
that I was good or was worthy or that I was deserving of the love of the person that I was in conversation with. Talk to me a little bit about, about the way that achievement for you or that status as it might be associated with some of how you might have previously introduced yourself was a driving factor and, and what was good about that, but also where the downside really has come in and how you've kind of changed yeah. your life to not have that be the thing that leads. Yeah. So I love, and I love how you, you talk so much about so many of the things that I talk about in, in your new book and how when you're such an achiever and when you've had a lot of success, you just, you never think that that's going to become a bad thing until it does become not a bad thing, but something that can really cause you a lot of issues as the world around you begins to change. And as you begin to change, things don't fit anymore. But, you know, all the things that I did early on, they weren't bad things. I was, a, I was an achiever just by nature. You know, I grew up on this, this farm, you know, I said I had 24 first cousins, but like we were together all the time, like real compoundy, not the bad parts of the compound, but like looking back, it's like we had the farm in the middle. My grandparents were there. We were all, it was just, it's a funny way to grow up. I think that I was just a natural born achiever because I was not only the oldest of four siblings, but I was the oldest of all these kids that I grew up with, all these grandkids. I was really a leader. And then I achieved in the early way that one achieves. I was like a star in my hometown, little tiny town because I was a singer. And so I was this, you know, public person as a young person. Then I was valedictorian and all the things that you can be like the number one at when you're young. And in the beginning, achievement was, it was a great marker for me. It was a great way to, to have goals and to move my life in the direction that I knew I wanted to go in. And it wasn't until like I did Miss Kentucky and that was runner for Miss America. And right after that, I started doing the amazing races. And all of these front outward facing ways that other people can say, well, she's doing it. Like she is she is achieving. We are proud of her. She has made it like out of the, out of the country and like we can watch it on TV. And it was just all of this outward success that, and I was like in my early twenties, I was 25 and I started becoming obsessed with achievement and obsessed with what can I do that other people can see that is better than this thing. And once you've done, mm. like I'd almost won Miss America and then I almost won the amazing race and I almost I was doing all these things that was, they were hard to top for me. So I started spiraling because, you know, I, I was prescribed this, this prescription medication. Here I am like goody two shoes. I don't do anything wrong. So I was not going to do anything that was illegal, but I did started taking things to help me do more, stay awake, sleep at night. And I started just spiraling as I couldn't seem to achieve the things that I thought other people were going to look at me and be like, yes you know, you did it again. And yeah. um, my identity was so wrapped up in achievement, Dave, that I knew after I was like five years into this spiral, I was, I was like at a low, low, low. And I would go to the doctor's office, you know, probably trying to get more medication. And I would have doctors looking at me and saying, if you continue, whatever you're doing, you are going to die. You will not, you will not live. You need to figure out like what is going on. And I would think to myself, I would rather go like this than let people in on the fact that I felt like I was a failure, that I felt like mm. I'd gone down this spiral. And to be to the point where you would rather achievement on the outside and everybody think things are fine versus death. I mean, my obsession with achievement was, was the deepest that it could possibly be. And it took me, you know, having this journey, the first part of the journey in the book where I had, to, I ended up in a treatment center, um, which was the last place I ever thought I would end up. 
but it saved my life and it changed my life because I'd never hit a low like that. I thought that I had, you know, lows are all relative. Never hit a low like that. And when I hit that and went like all the way to the bottom, dug up all of these things that were underneath this addiction that had kind of happened in my life. And I realized how crippling this obsession with achievement was, how crippling like my attachment to my appearance was and to being viewed as different and not average. I mean, I know you deal with some of the same things. You could not look at me and think, well, you know, you just like everybody else. I had to feel special and be special. I had to do the things that people thought were special. Or I just felt like there was no reason to live. And uh, I opened up the whole book with this. It's a, it's almost a funny story, but this story, I'd had long blonde hair extensions for 10 years, never gone a day without them. One of the most pivotal things that ever happened to me in my life was at treatment. They knew what they were doing with me. And they knew that I was really attached to this outward appearance and all these things. They made, they took these hair extensions out of my hair. And it was the one of the lowest points of my whole life. I wanted to die when they took those out. I felt so stripped of my identity and just so like nobody that I was like, you know what? It's funny to open such a serious book. It's not a serious book, though. It's a book that is very motivational, talking about living fully. But there's very serious things that happen to me in this journey toward living fully. But I had to open it with that because there's so many things that we get attached to, not only like titles and accolades, but the way that we look and the way that people see us and displaying ourselves in this just particular way with like our talents on display or like, this is who I am. And uh, a big part of this book was figuring that out at the beginning of the book, but then continuing in my life, you know, I'm a, I am in recovery, but re- the recovery part of my story, that's, that's in the past. Now I'm just a person that's a mom of two. I've got this business. I have to constantly choose every day of my life. I'm not going to live okay, fine, comfortable, and easy. I'm going to, I have to, I'm living a bigger life. So I have to constantly like revisit those things that I know I get trapped beneath. And I know that you're passionate about this too, because I've read a lot of the things that you've said about the same thing. You, you just have to rage against this like temptation of an easy life. I talk a lot about that in the book. There is somebody listening. There's a lot of somebody's listening who have become okay with okay, mm-hmm. that have decided that the kind of fulfillment or the kind of full life that some people experience is reserved for them, but not accessible necessarily to all. And I'm curious because you were not living fully, had this spiral season, and then had a decision that was necessary to change your circumstances that interestingly, I'm going to guess, pushed against your ego or your vanity oh, or your Lord, pride yes. in having to confess that change was a thing that you needed to uh, have agency over and, and actually enact. Talk to me about the decision to change your story and start the catalyzing of this full life by first having to own what you had to unwind or reframe in deciding treatment was the thing that you and, and were interested in and needed to, to mm-hmm. give yourself a chance for full life. Yeah. So I think a lot of people with the red flag flashing problem, if you are to the point that I was where you are near death, a lot of times it's not a rational thought of, you know what, I've got a problem with this. Here's the place that I'm going to go. I'm really going to take this seriously. You're so delusional in your thinking. So that's why, though, I talk about the people with the red flag. That's almost the easy stuff. You know how to deal with those types of problems. There are facilities in place. There are therapists that deal with it. So when you have the red flag flashing, like I did, 
a lot of times it's people on the outside that notice the problem. So I was isolated a lot during this point in time in my life. And my, my parents, I'm from, a like I said, a very close family. I was living in Nashville and they were living in Kentucky though. So they were around me when I was really in the end of this spiral to where it couldn't have gone on much longer. And they just looked at me and were like, something is up. Something has changed. She is not, I don't know what it is because no one could really see this thing that was getting out of control because a lot of it, that stuff is done in private. And so, you know, no one in my family had ever had any sort of issue like this or gone to treatment for an issue like this. And my mom, they took my keys away one weekend that I was in. I was still doing events. I was in seeing an event that weekend that I was in at a Catholic school that I had been to. I am the person that's standing up there with a microphone. They gave me a microphone. I was out of control and I, they just were still giving me the microphone. And <laughs> so I was, I was at home that weekend and they were just like, your soul is gone. What is wrong? And, you know, I was like 90 something pounds. Like my pupils are like the size of my whole ass. There were a lot of indicators that something was off. They took my keys away and they just started Googling things and like, what do we do? So when I went to treatment, luckily, when if you have a community around you that will step in when you have the red flag flashing, what a blessing that is. And a lot of times that happens for people. Sometimes it doesn't. And you have to be a person that really picks yourself up. And it's so hard when you're in active addiction or something like this. It is. Uh, I really admire people who can do it on their own. But when my parents brought me to treatment, they literally loaded me up, took me there, and I went back there. So when you get there, because a lot of times you're not going to admit, okay, this is the, I need to make a change. Here I am to make the change. They'll, they'll take your blood as soon as you get there and just be like, you know, what is she on? Or what situation? And I thought, you know what? My parents can wait in the waiting room because they're going to take it and they're going to tell them she doesn't, do, she doesn't do drugs. She doesn't need to be here. And my parents left while I was back there um, doing my assessment. And um, my mom says she got in the car and she felt so relieved because she knew I was in a place that I was supposed to be. And my dad said he felt like he was abandoning his child. Like it takes, had it been, had it not been for my mom, you know, the one pushing and being like, something is not right with my child. I don't know that this is what it is, but we have to try this against her will. I obviously got in the vehicle and I willingly went because at that point it was like, I had nothing else. I was like, I'm just not going to tell anybody I did this. I'll do it to appease them. Maybe they'll help me. And in my first 30 days in the program, you know, I realized, okay, I, I, I do have a problem. This does, this does count. I am here like for a reason. And after the first 30 days, like in a program like that, you're just sober. You start to come alive again in your mind and you realize oh my gosh, this was suppressing all of the things that I was trying to numb out, but it was suppressing every bit of the joy and vibrance that was my life before too. So you start to make these realizations and you're like, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. But in the first 30 days of a program like that, they cannot get to the bottom of what in the world got you to that position in the first place. So at the end of the, the 30 days there, they'll assess you and they'll say, you can go home or you can go to sober living or you need more you need more treatment. So I was sitting there. My parents came for the assessment and uh, I knew they were going to let me go. I wasn't even on the heavy stuff. I was like, good to go. I realize it. I'm good. I think I'll write a book about this. You know, (laughs) (laughs) all of the delusions that you have when you first start to feel better after you've just, you know, emerged from something like this. And they said, we're recommending three more months for you. And I said, 
three more months. I am fine. Like I fought just to stay fine because better felt so much better to me than like I did before. I think so many times in our life, we get to that point where you've just dealt with the problem that you think this is what's holding me back from the full life. You deal with that problem and you're feeling a little bit better and you're like, well, hallelujah, praise the Lord. I have arrived and I'm, I'm great. I think I would have fought to stay there, but honestly, Dave, I, I don't know if I'd still be sober today. If I, if I was sober today, I would have been sober out of spite or sober out of just like being another achievement that now I'm a sober person. I've conquered this thing. But when they sent me across the street to this extended care place, they really get to the bottom of what it is that got you there in the first place. And, you know, I know your question was, you know, what, when was the choice of like the, I'm going to change my life. And that's when the choice of the the first 30 days was other people banded around me like, you're going to die if we don't help you. Let's help, which you're so lucky if you have that person. They got me in there. But the second layer of that, I had to choose. I could have walked out. You know, I was in my 20s. I wasn't under 18. I could have left at any moment. And there were two times that I really thought about it. When they took that hair out, I just said, I am done with the sober stuff, this recovery stuff. Y'all are trying to make all of us look bad and feel bad. And this feels way worse. And I got to get out of this place before you dull me down even more. But I stayed. And um, that choice that I made was what really changed my life. It's what really made me realize the things that were standing in the way from a full life, that they weren't just the substances. It was this these titles and this hair. And then, you know, the second thing that they did, so they, they took these hair extensions out. They stripped me of everything that was my identity that I'd ever known. While I was in treatment, um, a season of the amazing race was airing. And like on Sunday nights, they let, they let the patients turn on the TV and they would not turn to that channel. Cause they were like, you cannot talk about anything you have done because word had started to kind of get out. And of course they didn't want me being, I'm the special one here. You know, yep, yep. that was part of my problem. But it, but it started to happen. And I started to, um, you know, I, they had this chapel every Sunday and they, uh, I would sing at chapel. I've been a singer my whole life. And it was like the one thing that I was still hanging on to. Like everybody came to this, they knew I was the singer and they knew these things that I'd done. And it made me feel just special enough to not be stripped of everything. Cause they'd stripped me of just all the things, but this was my last thing. So it was like, I'd been there for two and a half or three months and and uh, I'd done, you know, all this work and I walked into my therapist's office and the, the vice president and like head of all spiritual directors was sitting there in the room in my session. And I was like, well, hello, you know, what's going on here? And he just kind of asked me, he said, are you familiar with the mask exercise? And I was, I was like, oh yeah, the paper mache masks. We've done that twice. Do you want to see mine? It's on my wall where they've made me hang it. Like I understand about the masks. We wear the masks. We take them off all the time. It's awesome that you've come here to talk to me about this because you are really important here. But he's like, well, we're going to continue that work and you will no longer be singing at chapel. And I was like, what? This is a good thing. Like now we can't have talent. Like what is it? What is this thing? This recovery? And they knew what they were doing. Yeah. Because when they took that away from me, that was the last thing that I had. And I had nothing to set me apart, nothing to hide behind. Even the good things, you know, so many times, you know, I'm, a, I'm in recovery now, but I still fight to like live fully every day. And this is something that I even have to think of now. What are the things that I'm holding in front of me? Maybe it's not the obvious things like the titles and the accolades, but the things that can seem like good, the things that I'm good at, or the things that define me that 
don't, they're not bad things, but we can still become attached to those. So I'm going to make the change uh, in my life and I'm choosing to do this. And this is much harder and this feels terrible, but um, you know, leaving treatment, I was there for like six months at the end of it all. And when I got out of treatment, the, the biggest things that I took away that I feel like were really the foundation of this living fully thing was not sobriety for me. That was the thing that I needed to get. I had to take care of that. But it was this attack. It was, it was the attachments to these things and becoming okay with being the person that I was without all of these like shiny things on the outside. And that's what I still work on today. Um, and I, yeah, so I'm speaking to people in this book who maybe have the red flag and Maybe they have an issue like that. But I'm also speaking to the people that don't because I'm that person today. And um, maybe they don't have an addiction or maybe they don't have um, one of these things. But I didn't either for the first 24 years of my life. And I haven't for the last seven years or whatever the addition is there. And that is the that is what I have to constantly keep choosing to live a bigger life than the easy one that we can all fall into every day. So. I like a long answer. It's so good. I wanted to just acknowledge a couple of things that you said. Number one, this recognition that you have that I have also had in my life that uh, masking coping mechanisms, whatever it might be, whether it's food or sex or alcohol or pills, they aren't a local anesthetic. You can't take care of the thing that you're trying to mute without also muting joy or hope or a hope filled vision for the future. All of the things get muted and um, that's no way to live. Uh, Even if you um, get the benefit of not having to deal necessarily with your feelings, you also get the downside of not getting any of the good that this world is meant for you. I do think that there's something interesting too in this observation that you've had that I've also had in my own life where um, I have had extended periods of time where not drinking was a thing that I did. And I had some pride for it, but abstinence without understanding the root cause for the want or the need to drink in the first place or medicate in the first place or eat in the first place is nothing. And in the same way that you made the choice in the turn inside of treatment, the turn for me is uh, it's not so much just about not drinking. It's about understanding that uh, drinking was a symptom of a thing that Mm -hmm. I have to get at the core of in terms of the root problem, the cause. And that work is the hard work because it's the work that requires a lot of tears and a lot of looking at stuff that you don't necessarily like to look at in Mm -hmm. rooms that are uncomfortable at times to have Mm -hmm. to confront those things. But that's the the trade-off if you want to have that fuller life. Um, It's not even just about getting your house in order. It's understanding why it was disordered in the first place. And so I just acknowledge that. that. I love that, man. So good. Mm -hmm. What's interesting about your story is like you have, yes, had this like life O achievement. And also you were really close to the top a couple of times where I'm sure in the moment you were so um, wishful for winning when you were runner up or wishful for winning, uh, you know, whether it was the amazing race or a pageant, whatever Mm -hmm. it might be. Do you see now by any stretch the way that the not winning was in fact a blessing because of the way that winning was resetting a bar or having you have to try and hurdle over something higher? And man, if that had happened, how much more of an issue would you have had to try and have to work through or unpack? My gosh, I wouldn't be alive today if they had put, so, you know, every loss, it was just enough of a win for me that like people could see it on the outside. I was running up in Miss America, almost won, but I lost. So then I got to do the amazing race a month later. Had I been Miss America, I would, I would have not been able to do that. So that first loss was, was followed by something that was 
was shining even brighter. Had I won the Amazing Race, so if you win, if you haven't seen the Amazing Race and you're listening to this, 12 teams to two, race around the world for like 20-something days, doing all these competitions, crazy, mental, physical, all these just crazy things. I went with my dad. It was like the most amazing experience. But if you win at the end, you win a million dollars. Let's and go if for I a million. Had, I mean, if they had given that child that was spiraling out of control and had a prescription drug addiction and was like a bottomless pit becoming, if they had given me a million dollars, absolutely no way that I would be here today. So yeah. very much so was that loss the best thing that could have happened. And it was, but then what was great about my losses is every time, and it kind of fed into this like achievement person. Every time I had a loss, they would reward me with something else. So because I didn't win Amazing Race, they called three weeks later and said, would you like to do the all-star season in one month? Uh, yeah. Like losing yes, was the would. best at that point in time because <laughs> I still have these achievements and these things that I was able to do. But you know, I know it's a cliche thing in the, in the self-help world when people say like, you know, losses, they'll, they'll build character and losses can, but for me, losses just kept me from dying there for a while. Yeah. And losses guided me to one more thing that I got to be like shining in the spotlight just for a little bit longer. Yeah. So in a way, yes, they were good for me in a lot of different ways. One unhealthy and one very healthy because like I was able to live because they didn't handle, hand me the keys to the kingdom. But um, I think in a, in a lot of ways now, not so much losses, because I'm not necessarily in like, this is the goal. This is, you know, I want this book to do well. That's one way that like, I, t- I guess technically I could win or lose. But when I think of things as losses or like the things now that happen to me in my life that like I'm avoiding or not avoiding, I think that like avoiding adversity is like a huge thing that our whole generation really does. And I write a whole chapter about that in the book about my grandparents. I'm like, you know, someone in your life, like of that generation where adversity was just something that it wasn't necessarily a win or lose, but like life was just hard. Like they faced yeah. all of these really hard things. And when I look at the people in my life that I admire the most, they've all experienced like knockdown, drag out things that have happened to them. And this day and age, we want to avoid them at all costs. We don't want to go through them. They're too hard. We choose a totally different path, I think, sometimes to avoid those things. But when we look at those people, it's like they didn't just like make it through those things. Like they were made through those kinds of things. So when I think about something that I'm about to experience, a loss or like something that I didn't achieve or adversity of any sort, I think about that. I think about those people that I love. I think about the adversity that's happened in my own lives my own life. I feel like I've lived multiple lives. So sometimes I say lives because I've lived so much different life, but, um, I I look at it and I say, I I welcome, I welcome it in a way right in the middle of it when I used to want to avoid it and numb it and just at all costs, didn't want to lose, didn't want to experience any kind of pain, but now it's different. It's a different way to live. So I'm curious because of all of the experience of your experience, I, I grew up in a house where I had a sister, I'm the oldest of four. My sister is the second oldest. Every single time she walked in a room, my mother literally would sing, here she comes, <laughs> Miss America. And as much as I have zero context for the pageant world, um, there, there is something that like in the world of success or what it means to be 
you know, cool, you know, it's big time, mm-hmm. whatever it might be, or what it means to be feminine or what it means to be, you know, whatever we might uh, have put on a pedestal. There's something in the way that you might think about, you know, pageants and winners or whatever that in some ways is amazing because, man, you're recognizing people who've worked really hard, but also can create some of these things that ultimately end up working against some of what is in the best interest of us when performance tips into another place. Is there a difference in how you think about pageants or pageantry now, knowing what it had as a part of your journey? Or was this a thing that was just a byproduct of wiring and whether it was pageants or anything else, achievement was always going to show itself in the way that it did? I think that it was definitely wiring. Achievement was always going to show up um, for me, yeah. for, for sure. And any anything, it could have been the pageants, it could have been the TV shows. But I do think that when you do a pageant, they literally put a crown on your head and a sash across your body. And that is how you enter every room for one year of your life. I spoke to hundreds of schools that year. I walked into high schools. I walked onto the Senate and the House of Representatives floor in Kentucky. I walked into all of these places with my title front and center. Here I am. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that does something to you. It was one of the most wonderful, amazing years of my life. But I do think that that's where some of the seeds of perfectionism really started to grow into things that took on a life of their own. And I was never like, you know, my sister did pageants. I was never like the prettiest one. It was not like ever about beauty. You know, Miss America was 35% talent, huge percentage interview. It's not like beauty pageant, beauty pageant. But when they put the crown on your head and like when you're wearing the dress and when they put this, you start to kind of feel like that. And even though that had never been something that I'd struggled with before that I was known for, it definitely became part of my identity. And like I said, I told you that story, like when they, when they took that hair out, it's like they were taking off, they were taking that crown off that they were taking that. It was like it had erased everything that I'd ever done. And now pageants, like everybody, you are wired a certain way. A pageant's going to do one thing to you or it's going to do another thing. And you know, Dave, I don't know what, I don't know if pageants will still be around in 15 years. Who knows? The world is different. So many things are changing. I don't know. And, but Miss America for me, it opened so many doors. It was such an amazing opportunity. It pivoted my life. It opened my eyes in so many ways. I, I was raised in this tiny town. I had seen diversity and I had seen people on the different sides of socioeconomic scale. But when you travel to every county in your state and you're from a state like Kentucky, where there is such a difference in one place to the next, it opened my eyes because here I was spreading my first version of the living fully message and that you can be what you want to be. You can do what you want to do. You can be whatever you want. But when I started to walk into certain schools and I saw some kids that it was, it was different for them than it was for me. It opened my eyes in a way that I think a lot of people's eyes are open at some point in time in your life. And it showed me that while yes, no matter your circumstance, I do believe that you can do whatever it is that you want to do with your life. But I do think a lot of people have to climb out of a well where I'm starting on level ground or like, and it, and it taught me that lesson. And I think it's very important in the journey of living fully, because when you live at, an easy and shiny and sparkly life like I had up until that point. Yes, you're passionate about your message. You want those kids to understand that. But you have to realize that piece of the puzzle too, I think. Oh, yeah. Now, privileges, we've talked about privilege here a lot. And it's like, I I, I do love the conversation around pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. But can we please acknowledge that some people's bootstraps weigh 
2000 pounds. And yes. it's just something that uh, if you're not someone who is, you know, in that same boat where it's just hard for you to pull them up as it might be for someone else, at least let's recognize and have conversations about it and yes. acknowledge that it exists in a way that maybe provokes uh, you know, a, a deeper conversation around policy or advocacy or something. Yes, uh, yes. We just can't ignore, we can't ignore that it, it's, you know, yes. a reality of the world we live in. Exactly. And hopefully, you know, the world will make up the difference in those, in some of those instances. But until then, it was really important for me to, to realize that. Um, and that was a big thing that I took from that year as Miss Kentucky and something that I, I still remember today. One time they accidentally gave my phone number out to all the kids in one school. They printed out, I had yeah. a headshot at all time and they put my business card with my cell phone number on the, and photocopied it, gave it to like 600 students. So they would call me and I'd be in the car on the way to another school and I'd be like, Miss Kentucky, Miss Kentucky. And I would be like, who is this child? Yes. And they'll be like, if I took. I told my mom I want to be a marine biologist, but she says I can't because I live in Florida. Like, you know, it, it was just, they were asking me the questions about, I want to be this. Can I still do this? And it, it was such a funny, like, period where I would start getting all these phone calls because I realized, like, you, you want for and you yearn for a bigger life when you're, when you're younger. And all these kids, they really wanted that. They wanted to make sure that they could still do it because they didn't have people around them that were telling them that they could or um, maybe that were telling them that they couldn't. But I think then, um, you know, as we get older, the need and the want for comfort and for an easy life takes precedence over like this dream big stuff. Yeah. We stop taking the risks. We stop taking the chances. You know, I learned so many things that year in Miss Kentucky and pageants were a great thing for me. Yeah. They planted yeah. some seeds, but those seeds were going to be planted in another way. Had I done or, you know, not done the pageant overall, it was an amazing thing for me. I, I, I have myself been someone who has had a relationship with comfort over time and certainty to a certain degree over time that has had me trading off a little bit of um, something I have familiarity with for the possibility to become something bigger. It's like every time I find myself in a season of stuck, it's that, oh, I'm clinging to something that I know instead of something that I need. When it comes to suffering, interestingly, I think that there is a part of our humanity that has almost become comfortable staying inside of suffering that we have familiarity with because of what feels like predictability or what feels like um, comfort in an, in an uncomfortable way. There is comfort in knowing what you get from the suffering that you're already familiar with. Very and well I just, you know, like part of my message and I think part of yours is that um, suffering isn't a thing that any of us hopefully should become comfortable with or believe is necessarily the, the way that we're meant to go through life. Yes, it's going to require that we get uncomfortable by doing something new or different, finding a new circle or immersing ourselves in, in, into something that's going to challenge the way that we've been thinking over time. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you've written this whole book about living fully. If someone finds themselves currently stuck in suffering, they've like for a long time now had even this uh, suffering become part of their identity. What's the first or the first couple of things that they should do to try and move away from something that they've known for this thing that they are absolutely entitled to and that exists if they're willing to make that big first step. Mm -hmm. So first you have to just slow down and look at your life. You know, I wrote 10, there's like 10 different subjects, 10 different ways where I have to break through in my life at different points in time to live fully. Maybe it's, I'm super fearful. Maybe my life is just really noisy and busy. Maybe it's like, I'm not thinking about my legacy. Maybe it's something that you're dealing with like a red flag, an addiction or something you keep brushing under the rug. But only you know that. And you have to, I think so many people, they open a self-help book and they look for the answer. 
for that book to tell them what they have wrong with them and then exactly how to fix it. But I think the piece that's missing is that reflective piece of you have to slow down for long enough to look within yourself and be like, you know what? This is my problem. Maybe it's a red flag, huge thing that is very obvious. Or maybe as you read through a book like this, things will jog your memory and you think, actually, it's this for me. But the thing is, and what I would tell that person, it's like, I'm stuck in suffering. I want to, I want the familiar and I want the easy, but it doesn't feel right to me is once you figure out what is that thing that you need to break through. And once you figure out the tools that work for you, the biggest part is you have to constantly re-choose to use those tools because you will always be pulled back down to baseline. So it's like, I want it to be like people's wake up call. This is it. This is what's blocking me from living fully. But then I want it to be like their stay awake call. You Gravity will always pull you right back down. And living fully is continuing to choose that. For me, every day, even though I'm a person that wrote a book about this, and I've been through a six-month recovery program, and I've had all of the top people tell me the exact things to do and how to do them. But I still have to internally review my life. This is standing in my way. And I have to constantly choose again and again. I want to choose a bigger life. And today I have to put these tools into practice, even though they're a lot harder than it would be to just be like, you know what? Nothing bad's going on. It's fine. I'm going to live like this. The absence of bad is not a qualifier for a good life. And, and I'm here, not, here. Say, that, say, that, say that again. That is such a good line. <laughs> the absence of bad is not a qualifier for a good life. And I think that for a long time, I thought that. Yeah. And especially when you have a family or when you have a big job or you have all these things happening around you. It's very, very easy to think, you know what, as long as nothing's going wrong, it's fine. But if you live your whole life like that, like you are living at 50%. Yes, you're not living below the 50% line where everything's bad, but you are not. There's a whole big, huge, huge option of life that is available to you that you are not accessing. And you will miss out on completely if you don't. Completely agree. And I say that there's a famous quote from whoever said it good is the opposite of great or the the you know enemy of great. Yes. Like I think we become sometimes complacent in just like rationalizing, you know what? We've got it pretty good, relatively speaking, or you know, like I, I'd hate to be someone who complains or feels greedy for wanting more. And yet I just in all of my being believe that we were put here for extraordinary purpose. And part of that requires that you believe that greatness is a thing that you have access to and that you deserve. But of course, it's something that also takes action, not just one-time action, but daily action. And that's the part that ends up being tough. As we're we're wrapping up, I want to make sure that people are clear with what it is you'd hope for them to get out of living fully. This new book of yours comes out February 8th. If someone were to pick up the book, what is the thing that you can promise to them were they to pick it up, read it, and actually put some of what it says into action in their life? So we went back and forth on the subtitle for this book for like a year. And I settled on, didn't settle on, I chose. Dare to step into your most vibrant life. I love the word vibrant. Vibrant is like all the colors, you know, it's the bright colors, it's the dark colors. It's And I promise anyone that picks this book up that they will find something in there that if they put that into practice in their own life, you will feel a much more vibrant life, which includes amazing joy, which also though, you have to face adversity and there are things that will be uncomfortable, but the trade-off for that will be so amazing to, uh, to the reader, to the person. And 
you will understand if you like, if you do any of those things that it's worth it. And like, this is a better way to live. I, I can, I can guarantee that not from being an expert on this subject. I'm not approaching this book. Like I'm an expert and here are the things that you do because I have studied it and I've, I've lived it. I've yeah. lived it. I've, pro- it has been proven over and over time and time again in my own life. And I don't write this book as a person that's like t- spouting off things that I learned in all of these programs and through all these things. I'm just telling you my story. I'm from a family of storytellers and I am just telling my story and telling the things that I've learned of these are the keys to living fully for me every single day. They still apply. They all apply a lot more at certain points in my life. And some of them apply a little bit less, but it, it all, it, it's all in there. All of the things that I learned and all the things that I feel like are the pieces of the puzzle. And if you read this book, I can guarantee that if you dig deep and you figure out, you know, which of these things are, are preventing you from living a full life, you face that adversity or that uncomfortability that the trade-off will not just be, oh, this is better. The trade-off will be like vibrant. The trade-off will be joy that you haven't experienced before, a different kind of joy. I'd experienced a lot of joy in my first 20-something years of life, but the joy that I experienced after I went to those hard places, man, is it like 10 times more vibrant. So that's what I would... That's what I would guarantee. Too. Here, here. I mean, the thing that I love <laughs> about you, and it's the like the cornerstone of the work that you do. I try to do it myself. You are very comfortable being honest about the good and the hard, the struggle that produced the breakthrough. That there's something that I am certain every single person who's listening will see themselves in your stories. Will feel normal for experiencing that same kind of struggle, and encouraged to consider that maybe some of the things that worked for you might work for them. I am here for it. Thank you, Mallory, for your willingness to go there and be comfortable, being a little uncomfortable, sharing your truth so that other people can find theirs. I just, I am so, so happy for you and encouraged that um, this is going to change some people's lives when it comes out. Uh, We are at the end of our show, and I finish the show each time by asking people uh, a somewhat similar question. And that is, if there was a single idea, a quote, a comment, a takeaway, something that's on your heart that you know some listener right now needs to hear, and you want them to remember from this episode, what's that one thing that you would hope that they might take away today? So I'll say something different every time. But I would say, if you feel like your life is not where you thought it would be, or if you were in the midst of suffering, that that's the best place to be, because that's the starting line to a really, really amazing life. And I think that, you know, the thing that we said a while ago, the absence of bad is not a qualifier for a good life. I want everyone to remember that and live with that in the forefront of their mind, because I don't want anyone to fall into that way of thinking, because life is, is meant to be so much more than pain avoidance. It, that's, pain avoidance is a powerful motivator for mediocrity. And I don't want anybody to be mediocre listening to here, this. Here, here, <laughs> here. All right, Mallory, if if people are interested in learning more about you or your book, the uh, opportunity to follow you on social, where do you send them in the interwebs so that they can get uh, to become your very best friend, basically? Yes, I'm everywhere on the interweb. So whatever medium you like to watch people on the interweb, except for like sketchy ones, I'm there. So um, Instagram, Mallory Irvin, M-A-L-L-O-R-Y-E-R-V-I-N. YouTube. Um, but if you go to MalloryIrvin.com, you can find everything. I also have a podcast. Um, but if you ever did anything that could mean more to me, I mean, writing a book, I know, you know, Dave, because you're like the king of books, 
writing this down and like sharing my story was the hardest thing I ever did. And the thing that I did, I didn't have to do that. You know, hit the laws. They didn't, they wouldn't, they didn't, I could have kept this story secret forever. And I wanted to write this book to help people. So anyone that buys my book, that is just like, I'm so grateful to someone that would give me the time in their life to read my words. So uh, I just want to say like a pre thank you to anybody that even considers doing that. But MalloryIrvin.com, you can buy the book, listen to the podcast, watch the YouTube channel, Instagram, whatever, whatever. Excellent. Excellent. Mallory, you are rad. We are friends now. I am super, super excited for every bit of goodness that's coming your way with the book launch and all that will come after it. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, if you got anything from this episode and how in the world could you have not, please take a screenshot of the device that you were listening to this on, tag Mallory, tag myself. Tell us one thing that you took away from this so that the people in your social network might be encouraged to learn a little something from you out of what we've talked about today and between now and next week. Don't you settle for good. There is a full life waiting for you if you are willing to step toward it. We will see you next week on the Rise Together podcast. Thank you, Mallory. Thank you. Rise Together is hosted by me, Dave Hollis. This show is edited by Andrew Weller with production support by Sterling Coates. Cameron Berkman is our executive producer. Rise Together is a product of The Hollis Company.